Welcome to Exit Capitalism Stage Left. This is your host, Manda Riggle. This podcast is brought to you by the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights. The primary purpose of the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights is to educate people, especially young people, about democracy and human rights. This purpose will be achieved through, but not limited to, such practices as hiring an educator, sponsoring projects, sponsoring forums and workshops, showing educational films, operating library, developing educational materials, and producing podcasts like the one you're listening to here. Today is our 10th episode, and it is called Premature Reopenings COVID-19 in the U.S. But before we get started on that topic, we are going to go over our first segment, which is about the news. So first up in our Human Rights News Watch is looking at the state of Florida and how the Florida Health Department advises against gender-affirming care for youth. And this information comes from a story from CNN.com on April 20th. Uh, This says that the Florida Department of Health is advising against any gender-affirming care for children and adolescents in its new guidelines that are completely contradictory to directions from major medical associations and federal health officials. According to the guidance released Wednesday, children who identify as transgender or gender diverse shouldn't be offered social transition care, the process in which a child or adolescent adopts a name, gender pronouns, and clothing that match their gender identity, nor should they be offered puberty blockers, hormone therapy, or gender reassignment surgery. And yeah, so they're already saying that gender reassignment surgery is already not offered to children. This is something people get when they are older and can make that decision for themselves. So not only is that kind of a scare tactic and they're trying to say that, you know, children are transitioning and that's why they are putting up these laws and doing these blockers. They're also denying any sort of affirming care. And one of the things that all of us pretty much know is that when you deny a trans child any kind of gender affirming care, the rate of suicide amongst those children go up. So children in Florida are in danger because of this bill. And there's not much people can do at home. You can affirm at home, but if outside of the home society isn't affirming, it's going to be a very hard time for any transgender child in the state of Florida right now. There is a lot of pushback, but at the same time, Florida lawmakers are the ones who made this bill, and we are seeing similar things in Texas and Alabama. So this is just the start of the pushback against any kind of support for trans lives. As a continuation of this story, and again, looking to the state of Florida and pretty much just human rights, Florida is also uh, introducing a law limiting LGBTQIA plus discussions in schools. They're trying to make it, that's that whole don't say gay law that we're seeing. So uh, what it does, and this is according to the Washington Post, uh, it bans instruction or classroom discussion about LGBTQIA plus issues for kindergarten through third grade. Uh, It empowers parents to sue school districts over teachings they don't like. It requires schools to tell parents when their child receives mental health services. So I don't know how this has anything to do with being gay or on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, but apparently now therapy is gay, according to conservatives. Somebody sort that out for me. I I don't understand it myself, but we do see Florida 
in the wider spectrum of things, being a fighting ground for LGBTQIA plus rights. We're seeing this with denying trans kids any kind of affirmation and care. And then we're also seeing it with this limitation of being able to discuss things outside of the spectrum of straight within schools and the fact that parents are going to be able to sue. So if we go back to last month, or maybe the month before, we talked about how we see states like Texas being a place where conservatives are really fighting for the restriction of enclosure of abortion clinics, fighting against women's rights. We see something similar happening in Florida to LGBTQIA rights. It seems if we're looking at the wider picture, there are states the conservative states, I guess Florida is considered a swing state. I don't really consider it a swing state. It is a pretty conservative state, but I'm also an anarchist. So every state is a conservative state to me. Um, but we do see Florida uh, and Texas making these big movements to restrict rights. And then we see smaller states with maybe not as much um, power and sway over other states joining in. So Alabama is one that comes to mind. We see that when um, Texas started restricting its abortion laws, Alabama followed suit, Georgia followed suit. Now with Florida um, limiting LGBTQIA discussions in schools and then denying ephemeral care, states like Alabama, once again, are following. So we can see these kind of like larger conservative movements happening in these bigger states that are somewhat battlegrounds sometimes or just really strong conservative strongholds. Um, and then we see that restriction of rights spreading. And a really big thing that we see is now we're having these fights on the minor level to get these rights back because once they are taken away that spreads it they're they're gone right and so instead of having the same level of care we had before where we could talk about these things where we could go have abortions where we could go have gender affirming care they're taken away and we have to fight to get those back so it's always like this denial of care denial of selfhood and denial of human rights um as the first step in a longer battle that distracts us from any other kind of battle just to regain ground that we've had before. So that's the our first um, kind of like news topic is just looking at the state of Florida and how they're restricting human rights for LGBTQIA plus people and trans kids specifically. Our next segment kind of looks at the fight for water rights in Mexico. And this new story that I'm referencing is from Truthout, and the title is It's Not a Drought, It's Looting, Water Rights Activists Organize in Mexico. And the story begins, Mexico is heading into the worst months of its dry season. 15 of 32 states are experiencing extremely high stresses on water resources as use surpasses the amount available. Water right activists use the term day zero for the date when the region will lack sufficient water to meet basic needs. Much of Mexico is close to this point, with Monterey and Nuevo Leon only having two months of water reserves and Mexico City two years. For comparison's sake, England has been described as being in the jaws of death because its day zero is 25 years away. Activists with Indigenous Caravan for Water and Life argue that it is a multinational corporations, uh, often with government support, that are responsible for causing climate change, environmental damage, and water shortages, rather than the regular dry seasons. It's not a drought, it's looting, has been one of the main chants of the month-long caravan which kicked off in Puebla on March 22nd and will run until April 24th. 
The caravan, one of the biggest demonstrations in recent years of indigenous people's defense of the environment, will cover, cover nine states and visit indigenous communities across Mexico each day for 34 days. These communities are standing up for their environmental rights and autonomy. Most are confronting mega projects where manufacturers, mining, extractive and commercial companies, often from the U.S. and Europe, have built massive amounts of infrastructure, such as hydroelectric plants and gas pipelines, to plunder the commodities of their water and their energy resources. So this is still ongoing at the time that I'm recording this podcast. I don't know what the result of this is going to be and this fight for indigenous rights and access to your own water rather than corporations commodifying it and extracting it from the land, leaving the native population with nothing. But I wish them all the best. And I really hope they have better results than the water warriors in um, America that were (laughs) just brutalized by police um, that were, I believe some people were even ran over by cars during the um, protests of the Standing Rock like Dakota Access Keystone XL pipeline in the US uh under you know Trump's regime. So I I I stand with water warriors. I stand with the people who are trying to protect their native water. Um and I really do hope for a good outcome for the people in Mexico and that it's less devastating than what has happened in the US with similar battles. Now on to um thinking about free speech or Uh, I guess the lack of free speech on digital platforms, Elon Musk, uh, sworn enemy of myself, I guess, um, has made movements to buy Twitter. And I believe he has made an offer. He bought Twitter for $44 billion. And then the very next day, this is, I guess, just funny. Um, Tesla's stock plunged to a hundred plunged. $126 $126 billion the day after Elon Musk bought Twitter. So he spent $44 billion and then his company lost $126 billion. But apparently um, Twitter's, like, and then the first thing he did was fire all of Twitter's board. I'm not super sure what's happening. I'm not a business person. It's just kind of funny to watch uh, how much money Elon Musk is m- losing because he wants to... I don't even know what he wants to do with Twitter. He's already censoring people and blocking them when they tweet at him. Um, At least, you know, there's memes going around showing it. So I'm not 100% sure. I I know it's nothing good. I would not trust a capitalist to protect free speech. He's worried about his own freedom of speech. He's not worried about any of our freedoms of speech on a platform that he now owns. And for regular listeners of the show, you know that I have a good news segment um, or a good news about human rights segment. Elon Musk buying um, Twitter and losing a bunch of money is not that. It's just funny. I just wanted to say that because I hate him. Um, and actually, the the reader question relates to him yet again this week. Um, but right now, we're going to do some good news in human rights. And this uh, segment is always dedicated to my late comrade, Mimi Soltisic, um, who always emphasized hanging on to our small victories because the fight against capitalism and the fight for human rights and democracy um, is going to be an intergenerational battle. We might not live to see all of our victories, so we have to be sure to take time to recognize and celebrate each small victory in that larger battle for human rights, no matter how small that victory is. And so 
I really want to talk about Starbucks again. We've been um, touching on Starbucks unionizing a lot. We've touched a little bit on Amazon unionizing, which is more good news, right? The, one of the largest, most exploitative retailers is now being organized. Um, we even had a an anonymous barista of 10 years come and talk about their experience um, because it is, again, a, a mega corporation which people are being heavily exploited. Um, but Starbucks tried to file something with the Board of Labor to slow down union elections, and they missed the deadline by eight minutes. Like, I'm just laughing. I'm trying not to laugh into the mic. Uh, eight minutes, and they're trying to cite that um, Outlook, like, crashed when they were trying to set all the documents that they were supposed to. And the Labor Board's just like, we don't give a shit. So Starbucks uh, cannot slow down the rate at which Every store is being unionized, and it's really great to see um, it's happening locally as well. I'm in California, and I see places in like Long Beach and Ventura that have a special drink. So if you go and you kind of like, uh, I think it's I forget the name of the drink because I don't I don't live necessarily close to those areas, and I haven't seen the movement in mine yet. Um, but if you go and you order a special drink, you are letting the baristas there know that you support them unionizing. Um, and this is massive. It's everywhere. All these Starbucks are working on it. So it's great to see that they failed and that the labor board told them to fuck off. And our next segment is the recommended media segment. This is where um, I just kind of tell you what I'm listening to or watching or um, reading, right? Uh, and today, I'm since you're listening to a podcast, I decided I should recommend another podcast. I think that's people who listen to one podcast might be inclined to listen to another. Um, one podcast that I particularly enjoy is Intercepted, and it is by uh, The Intercept, which is a news source. I believe one of their main editors does this show. Other people come on sometimes. Um, the podcast is really informative. It's critical and thoughtful. They cover a range of topics. They don't just kind of like stick to one like type of thing. Um, but it's also very well paced and easy to understand. And I think they do a really good job of just breaking topics down and sharing them. So the podcast describes itself as being part of the Intercept's fearless reporting and incisive commentary discussing, discussing, discussing critical issues of our time, national security, civil liberties, foreign policy, and criminal justice, and some of their recent episodes, the death penalty capital. Um, another one is the U.S. trained officers have led numerous coups in Africa. Then they're talking about um, two fires that tell the tale of the U.S. housing crisis. So you can see there's a really good range of things. They also do international. So uh, they have a further back podcast from December, Life After Guantanamo, It Doesn't Leave You. Um, but yeah, if you're looking for a really informative news-based show that is critical, um, I like to listen to things at like one and a half to two times speed. I think the pacing is very well to listen to as it is, but also it's spaced out well to um, listen to it at a faster pace. Um, but yes, I really do enjoy Intercepted, a podcast by The Intercept. So if you are looking for another podcast to listen to, that one would be great. And now on to our main segment, which is talking about the premature reopenings and lifting of mask uh, mandates in the U.S. Um, where I'm at in California, they have the county has lifted masks. Not that people here were really wearing them all that often, um, but I I do have to say on a personal level, it is pretty 
terrifying. Um, one thing I think it's really hard because people, I understand people want to return to normal that people want to be able to go out and experience things and travel and not feel like all that time we spent staying inside and isolating. Um, and well, for those of us that did that were, you know, a waste, um, People want to think that, you know, the vaccines are 100%, that people won't get sick or long COVID, that, um, you know, death rates are down, and therefore I don't have to wear a piece of cloth or a piece of, you know, filtered paper over my face. Um, but, you know, that's not necessarily the case. We didn't isolate well enough in the U.S. We didn't have multiple shutdowns like we should have. Um, we still forced even though we, we labeled people as um, frontline workers and important workers, or uh, I forget the, the term we even used, um, you know, we're forcing like Starbucks workers to go in during a pandemic because we've deemed coffee as a necessity for society instead of just keeping bare bones things open so everybody could isolate and hopefully stop the spread of the disease. We didn't do it. We didn't do it enough. Um, and so for, I mean, I was one of the people who was able to isolate it. It essentially didn't stop the spread and it didn't help prevent the numbers that we're seeing. And it did, it wasn't good enough to reopen the way that we're doing it now. And so uh, I also like work on a school campus. I'm a, a fourth year PhD student. So I spend a lot of my time TAing. Uh, we're all forced essentially to come back in person. Um, last quarter in anticipation of kind of COVID numbers being high and last month, last quarter um, in anticipation of COVID numbers being kind of high because of the winter seasons and winter break, uh, we were able to teach from home half the quarter, then come in person uh, once numbers were confirmed to be down. But there was no such caution after spring break. Um, and then we also see movements from multiple campuses to kind of just keep fully open in the summer and in the fall without kind of taking COVID numbers into consideration because counties have lifted the mask mandates and uh, kind of lifted the restrictions around COVID, campuses are following suit. So in my own personal classroom where I'm teaching, last quarter I had a student test positive for COVID um, and we had to do the whole thing where I had to get tested, my class had to get tested. Um, but that wasn't actually something that the school mandated. That was something that was mandated before. And even though we were at home for half of the quarter, um, it seems that once we were back in person, the caution was no longer there. And the same thing happened again this quarter. So uh, week one, I get an email from a student. No, actually it was week two of a quarter, which is 10 weeks plus a final week. Um, I got an email from a student saying that they had tested positive for COVID-19. I informed the school and the email I got back was absolutely baffling. And this is something that is apparently standard across the UCs. So essentially I reported that one of my students had been exposed and tested positive through our report system. And then I get an email back. Confidential information. 
Our department was notified that you have potentially been exposed to COVID-19, but you are currently up to date on all required vaccines. In this case, you are not required to self-quarantine. However, it is recommended that you get a COVID test on or after five days of exposure and then the date of the exposure and follows. And the antigen test taken later than that date uh, is negative, continue to come to work and wear a well-fitting mask around a total of 10 days after exposure. If you tested positive, you must report the positive results to the COVID hotline, uh, survey and follow the guidance for positive test results. If you develop COVID-like symptoms, stay home and submit results via the COVID screening survey and get another COVID test. And said, and so um, it also noted that I may be eligible for workers' comp for time off taken for COVID-19. But there seems to be, so one of the things that we know is even if you are vaccinated, if you are exposed, if you don't experience symptoms, you could still be a carrier. So I could be wearing a mask, a mask, especially in a small classroom with poor ventilation. We don't have windows open. We don't have air circulation. I might not have it, right? But I could still carry and pass if I'm not, well, I could have it and just not know it because I might not be exhibiting symptoms because of my vaccination status, like, or what might appear to be like allergy-like symptoms to me could be deadly to another student who like has, I don't know, a, a medical pass or a pre-existing condition. Uh, maybe they're not fully caught up on their vaccines, right? Um, and then also depending on when you take your vaccine, they're even talking about getting a fourth shot. Just the fact that, uh, the immediate response, it seems short to me that it's just show up with a mask until you test positive. Uh, it seems like there's no caution there. Like if you know that you've been exposed, shouldn't, and in the past, the recommendations were stay home and isolate until you test negative. Uh, and if you're suspicious of that test, test twice before you come back, right? And so there's this now shift to, um, I don't know, just assuming that there are no long-term consequences if you're vaccinated to getting COVID and that you're not putting other people at risk if you're vaccinated and you've been exposed and you're out in the public until you test positive. So I, I just... I don't like that response. It feels like they're kind of putting all of their workers at risk at the UCs. And I'm not the only one to experience this on my campus. I have multiple friends who have also reported um, COVID exposures in their classroom and similar responses, which is just show up uh, after an exposure until you test negative or until you, you test positive. You should test in a certain window, um, but you could still keep showing up with a mask on until then. So... <laughs> Whew. yeah um it really does seem like our lives are not uh valued by the university as students or as workers and a lot of times admin and people with more power are still not showing up to campus they're still not exposing themselves they're exposing us because for them it's about profit they're worried that if classes remain online students are going to start demanding a reduction in tuition, which the UCs are already trying to raise tuition, so they don't want to reduce anything. So the movement to return in person on campus has absolutely nothing to do with education and everything to do with profit. 
So they're asking us to risk our lives for their bottom lines, and they're implementing unsafe COVID policies in order to ensure that students stay enrolled. And I, I hate it. I don't know what else to say about that. That's been my personal experience. I have been exposed to COVID multiple times in the classroom um, because of this policy that the UC has. And the UCs um, are not the only ones that are reopening. Multiple campuses are. A lot of campuses are doing kind of like hybrid models. Um, so students can stay home if they want to or show up if they want to. And people have to still teach from the classroom. That seems... Um, I guess slightly better because people can spread out and it's not like 23 students in a classroom that fits 25, which uh, <laughs> it's my situation right now. Um, but there's still other places that are, are doing worse somehow. Uh, my campus and other campuses have lifted their mask mandates. I, as I don't quite have a lot of power, right? I'm a TA. I, I do technically run my own course. Um, there's no kind of like direct supervision. I design the syllabus. I do all the grading. Um, but I also just don't have a lot of power in the hierarchy of the university. So I'm just very lucky in that my students are listening when I say they have to wear a mask if they push back and challenge me. Um, like the UC police departments have infamously not been wearing masks during the entire fucking pandemic, nor have many police departments. But the only recourse campuses give us if a student will not follow our directions is to call campus police, which is also something I would not do, um, but also it would be extraordinarily ineffective in this case. Well, I mean, pretty much in any case, you have to call a cop, it's ineffective. But let's go ahead and talk about the mask like mandate being lifted on airplanes, which I, to me, it kind of seems like people forgot how this pandemic spread in the first place which was over planes. So this um, article that I'm citing here comes from Slate, and it's called The Ruling Against the Airplane Mask Mandate Could Make Future Pandemics Worse. And I should also note that this article was written on April 21st, 2022, and it goes on Monday, Judge Catherine Kimball uh, Mazel struck down the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's public transportation mask mandate, and in the process, rendered the United States even more unprepared for the next pandemic. And I kind of disagree with the article here because I think it also leaves us kind of unprepared for our current pandemic um, because that circulated air could, and lack of masks can still get people sick with COVID. Like it's, we're going to go over, I do have a science segment. I'm not just pulling stuff out of my ass. I know my, my work is in English, um, but a vaccine does it mean full immunity. And it seems like a lot of people are operating under that assumption. Um, or that the disease is just like the flu now, or that there's no long-term damages, or that like um, everybody is vaccinated, even though numbers kind of show that. So there's less of a risk of passing it around. But this is an aside. Let's go back to the story. With a pandemic still raging on and COVID cases slowly trickling upwards again in major cities, it may be hard to imagine a separate future pandemic, but another virus will undoubtedly make its way across the globe. And if the CDC's muddled handling of the current pandemic is any indication, we're absolutely not ready for the next one. To understand why, let's start with our current pandemic. With Mazel's ruling, we've lost a critical tool in preventing the spread of a highly transmittable respiratory virus that has killed nearly 1 million Americans. 
Mazel's decision rests on an absurdly narrow reading of a major federal statute that formed the basis of several key public health measures over the last two years. Her nonsensical interpretation reduces this vital statute to rubbish, preventing future administrations from drawing upon it to combat future viruses. Whether or not President Joe Biden's decision on Wednesday, and I think that would um, coincide with the, again, the date of the 22nd, keep that in mind when it it references days and stuff, um, to appeal the ruling is good politics, it is sound law. Biden's Justice Department has an obligation to do everything it can to get this president off the books. The statute in question gives the CDC sweeping authority to issue regulations that are, quote, necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, and spread of communicable diseases, end quote, across state lines. It provides several examples of actions the government might take to stop the spread of a virus, including, quote, sanitation. The government argued that air travel facilitated the spread of COVID between states, which public health experts have documented. Again, this is fucking proven. Back to the article. Thus, the government assertion that required masks on public transit was a quintessential example of the kind of, quote, sanitation authorized by the law. And this is another aside. Again, I'm pretty much reading this whole article because it it says a lot about this ruling. I am not an expert in law. I am not an expert in uh, disease control, but I am good at research. So if this feels like I'm just reading an article at you that you could read yourself, please feel free to read it. I did cite it in the beginning, um, but I do want to connect this to a larger point. So I'm going to continue. Let's consider the logic sanitation broadly defined is the act of keeping something clean. Masks, the CDC argued, sanitize the air by preventing the spread of viral particles. Yet Mazel rejected this intuitive, common-sense definition of sanitation. Instead, she ruled that sanitation refers to measures that clean something, not ones that keep something clean, drawing an artificial distinction between the act of cleaning and the act of promoting cleanliness. Wearing a mask, she reasoned, does not clean things, but rather keeps things clean in the first place. Thus, they do not qualify as sanitation under the statute. Oh, my fucking God. All right. Um, just the, the ruling there. I'm sorry. That, that's, again, an aside. They didn't write, oh, my fucking God, in the article itself. Um, gosh, how to even address this? I feel like Mazel is uh, auditioning to be on the current Supreme Court, even though that seat's been filled by Justice Jackson. Uh, This kind of logic feels very akin to the uh, retroactive court that we have going on right now in the Supreme Court. I am very worried about what may happen with this decision if it continues up the line, um, because we haven't seen much in the way of protecting human rights, which you have a right to not be exposed to COVID. You have a right not to be exposed to deadly diseases, right? Um, You have a right to uh, take preventative measures. Everybody is very much focused on their freedom too. So their freedom, in this case, not to wear a mask rather than um, our personal freedoms from their germs and their diseases, which seems to be kind of the basis of Mazel's argument here. Um, But the Supreme Court has very much erred on the way of thinking about people's freedom too and their own kind of like personal agendas rather than anyone's freedom from. But let's go ahead and continue with the article. So Mazel claims that wearing a mask means nothing. At most, it traps virus droplets. 
She then goes on to say it neither sanitizes the person wearing the mask nor sanitizes the conveying the conveyance. Um, this, though, is clearly false. We know by now that SARS-CoV-2 doesn't just spread by droplets. It can also spread as an aerosol or viral particles suspended in the air. A high filtration mask, again, N95, works by using charged fibers that attract small particles before they can get into your mouth or nose or before they get into the surrounding air. It removes the particles from the air you breathe in or out, almost like it cleans the air, sanitizes, one might even say. It's easy to dunk on Mazel's reasoning, but this ruling has serious consequences that set a terrible precedent going forward if we want to combat a future pandemic strain that is a respiratory disease. It could make requiring masks on transportation systems a lot harder if we're faced with another fast-spreading respiratory virus. Even if the airplane itself has high-quality HEPA filters, the airport could still be a high-transmission site with passengers eating and milling about. The implication of Monday's ruling stretches beyond masks. Mazel's decision suggests that the federal government currently has extremely limited limited, I can't talk, sorry, power to combat contagious disease. It exudes hostility towards the statute that, since 1944, has formed a bedrock of federal public health programs. This same law, for instance, grants that the CDC has authority to require quarantine and isolation of infectious individuals, particularly at ports of entry. It gives the agency power to inspect animals and other products that can transmit communicable diseases. And in the earlier days of the COVID pandemic, the statute allowed the government to collect and report information about high-risk travelers and mandated COVID testing. Mazel's cramped view of the law might allow for none of this if it remains as presidented. Litigates, litigations will undoubtedly race to Florida or litigants people suing. Yeah, there we go. Well, undoubtedly raised to Florida, specifically to Mazel's courthouse at the onset of the next pandemic. There, they will file federal lawsuits that hobble the government's response like we're seeing now. And then it goes into Biden, which I, I don't have a lot of hopes for Biden, but let's go ahead and continue reading because, again, this is very informative and information that I cannot outright provide to you without this article. Biden's Department of Justice, therefore, made the right move in announcing on Wednesday that it would appeal the ruling to the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. It's certainly a gamble. The 11th Circuit is very conservative, and no matter the outcome there, the losing party will surely appeal to the Supreme Court. Again, that's where my worry comes from. Uh, back to the article. But the DOJ might have a trick up its sleeve when the conf... Uh, when the conflict driving when the conflict sorry driving a case becomes moot during appeal that is there's no more ongoing controversy the supreme court may simply vacate the lower court's decision if the cdc formally ends the mandate during this appeal the administration can ask scoutus to wipe mazel's decision off the books the tactic would prevent the justice from ruling on the merits while erasing its dangerous precedent, a win-win for the government, and the DOJ can keep its option open by commensurating an appeal. Many airline passengers cheered at the end of the mask mandate. The relief and delight are understandable. I don't think so, but okay. Um, it has been an endless two years of the pandemic, and very few people love masking. But in the midst of these uh, mid-air celebrations, we must remember there's going to be another pandemic down the line. When this happens, the CDC will need all of its virus-fighting public health measures at its disposal. Right now, the agency's hands are tied by Mazel. 
short term, it might be nice not to wear a mask on a plane, but we're all going to pay for it later. Now, I know the article focused a lot on the prospect of a future pandemic, but it still provided really good information about like how the masks work and how they help prevent the spread of this and other diseases. And it's still baffling. I understand how uncomfortable it is. I wear my masks everywhere. I have some cloth ones with filters that go inside. I have the straight up filtered ones. Um, it is, it is not always easy. Sometimes it's hard to maybe like exert yourself a lot like, uh, because they, I mean, they do have those little things that pop your mask out that help you get a little more ventilation and air going, but the discomfort is not worth somebody else's life. Um, and it's not worth the possibility of getting long COVID. And so I'm going to go ahead and jump to a new story. Uh, and this is from nature.com. And this is a question, a medical question. Do vaccines protect against long COVID? what the data says. And so the subtitle for this is vaccinations reduce the risk of developing COVID-19, but studies disagree on their protective efforts or effects against long COVID. And this is by Heidi Ledford. And just so I can um, kind of like cite their, their credits. Let me go ahead and look that up real quick, because again, I'm not a medical expert. I want to make sure I'm giving you guys like accurate and good information. And there we go. I found her Twitter bio. So Heidi Ledford is a science reporter at Nature, and she covers mostly biomedical information. Uh, she has a PhD in science. So there we go. It's not just me <laughs> making stuff up. It is uh, cited by a scientist here. So this article starts out with kind of um, an individual story. So physiotherapist David Perenio's neurological rehabilitation clinics used to treat about 50 people each week with conditions such as chronic pain, Parkinson's disease, and sports injuries. Then came long COVID. Now, Mate Sani Hospital Abilities Research Center in New York City, one of three clinics that Perino directs, treats another 50 to 100 people each week who are coping with issues such as extreme fatigue, breathlessness, difficulty concentrating, or any of the many other symptoms of long COVID. The long-lasting, poorly understood syndrome that can occur after infection with the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. He has 1,600 clients with long covid and more on a waiting list. He has noticed that even being fully vaccinated doesn't necessarily protect against long COVID. Many of his clients were infected before vaccines were rolled out and have been coping with symptoms for a year or more before they were referred to him. But he has seen about a dozen people who experienced long COVID from quote unquote, breakthrough infections in which vaccinated people catch the coronavirus. It is noticeably less common than in unvaccinated people, but it's still there, he says. He thinks that clinics should see more such cases in the months as the months tick by. Vaccines reduce the risk of long COVID by lowering the chances of contracting COVID-19 in the first place. But for those who do experience a breakthrough infection, studies suggest that vaccination might only half the risk of long COVID or have no effect at all. Understanding that the prevalence of long COVID amongst vaccinated people has urgent public health implications and restrictions that limit viral spread are eased in some countries. 
It could also offer clues about what causes linger or lingering COVID-19 symptoms long after acute infections have cleared. At present, public health officials are flying blind when it comes to long COVID and vaccination. Although vaccines greatly reduce the rates of serious illness and deaths caused by COVID-19, they are not as effective as completely preventing the disease, or they are not as effective at completely preventing the disease, and long COVID may arise even after mild symptoms or an asymptomatic COVID uh, virus infection. Countries with high infection rates could still end up with many cases of long COVID, even if nations have high rates of vaccines. That is hard to predict, says uh, Nisreen Alwan, an epidemiologist at the University of Southampton, UK, who has long COVID. We still need to see how much long COVID there is and how long it lasts after vaccination. Determining the risk of long COVID from breakthrough infections is challenging. Many people with mild or asymptomatic infections might not be tested for COVID-19, says immunologist Peter Broden at the uh, Karolinska Institute in, in Stockholm. Doing any kind of assessment of how many people develop long COVID uh, or long-term symptoms after they are vaccinated is going to be incredibly difficult, he said. We are going to miss so many people. More data should arise as countries continue to roll out vaccinations, including booster shots, and as research finding for studying long turn COVID is developed, including more than uh, 11 or $1.1 billion uh, U.S. from U.S. National Institutes of Health, the NIH, long COVID is still poorly defined, is still a poorly defined syndrome with a wide range of symptoms. A U.K. study estimates between 7% and 18% of people with COVID-19 went on to develop some symptoms of long COVID that lingered for at least five weeks. For some individuals, long COVID symptoms are mild. For others, they are life-changing. Nearly one-third of the people with long COVID in Petrino's clinics have severe congestive difficulties difficulties bleh, that can affect their ability to concentrate, speak, and remember, and which are not present which were not present before their illness. About 60% of Puritino's per, uh, patients have had to change jobs or stop working as a result of their illness. If you're young and healthy, death from COVID may be highly unlikely, Petrino says, but severe disability is not. The cause of long COVID, also known as the post-acute sequelance of SARS-CoV-2 infection, wow, I'm not a scientist, I'm trying my best here, sorry people, um, is as unclear as its definition. One possibility is that a reservoir of the coronavirus lingers after the acute infection, lurking in various tissues, such as the intestine, liver, or brain, and continues to cause damage. Another possibility is that the broad immune response triggered by the initial infection can generate antibodies and other immunochemical uh, reactions against the body's own tissues that could continue to cause complications after the infection has been cleared. Vaccination could reduce the likelihood of these scenarios. If a vaccination or if a vaccine induces high levels of antibodies and T cells capable of recognizing SARS-CoV-2, the immune system could stop the virus from doing its first few replications before it can establish hidden reservoirs within the body, says Akiko uh, Iwasaki, an immunologist at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. And vaccination allows the body to launch a more targeted immune response from the moment a coronavirus infiltrates the body, reducing the chance that nonspecific immune reactions will target normal tissue. 
the immune system is already sort of pointed in the right direction, says Brodin. You're calling in these very specific cells to attack a specific virus. Both antidotes and data suggest that such protections against long COVID is partial at best, but it is difficult to tease out exactly how common long COVID is in breakthrough infections. One Facebook poll of about 1,950 fully vaccinated people found 44 breakthrough cases, 24 of whom reported long COVID symptoms. The survey was done by the long COVID patient advocacy group Survivor Corps, and the results are reported in a preprint, but because the poll was not a random sampling of people, the findings cannot be used to estimate the rate of long COVID after vaccination. They only show that such cases really exist. Another study in Israel of around 1,500 vaccinated healthcare workers found that 7 or 19% of the 39 breakthrough infections produced symptoms that lingered for more than six weeks. However, the numbers of infectious studies are too small for a firm conclusion and um, to draw about any kind of absolute risk. One of the largest studies so far has gathered data from 1.2 million people who received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine and logged their experience in the COVID-19 symptom study app, which was developed by the London-based data science company Zoe and King's College London. The team found that a full two-dose regime of vaccination reduced the risk of long COVID as defined by persistent symptoms that lasted for at least 28 days after infection by about half amongst those who had breakthrough infections. But the study contained a disproportionate amount of women to men and fewer people from lower income areas. So there's some data bias there is what it's saying. Um, still, the message is clear, says Claire Steves, a geriatric at King's, a geriatrician, sorry, at King's College London and lead author of the study. Vaccination considerably reduces infection uh, rates and the severity of symptoms. Even with waning immunity, the emergence of the more infectious Delta vi- uh, variant, one study of the U.S. veterans, of U.S. veterans, sorry, found that the COVID-19 vaccines for that group offered about 50% protection against coronavirus infection, even during the Delta surge. Steves and her colleagues found that the vaccination um, then further reduced the risk of long COVID in those who developed a breakthrough infection by another half. About 11% of the unvaccinated group had persistent symptoms for at least 28 days, compared with 5% of the vaccinated group of breakthrough infections. Even so, The number of people who develop long COVID from breakthrough infections is significant, she says. It does still exist. We do need to be aware of that case. Another large study, which has not yet been peer-reviewed, suggests that the situation could be worse. A retrospective analysis of electronic health records from about 10,000 people with breakthrough infections found vaccines did not protect against several conditions associated with long COVID. That group was compared with control groups of people with confirmed SARS-CoV-2 infections who had not been vaccinated against COVID-19, but who had received an influenza vaccine. Differences in how the two studies were designed could amount for the difference results generated by the work in the COVID symptom studies, says Maxime uh, Tequette, a psychiatrist, psychiatrist and researcher at the University of Oxford, UK, who is first author of the health records analysis. 
For example, Duquette's study tried to account for potential lifestyle differences between those who received the COVID-19 vaccine and those who did not by including the control group. However, because the study relied on health records, it might not include data for people with milder symptoms that would not have had uh, warranted a consultation with a physician. Overall, Iwasaki has found the results of these studies disappointing. I honestly thought that the vaccines would protect against long COVID much more extensively, she says. Iwasaki proposed that Delta, which is more transmittable than other variants are, might have weakened the vaccine's protection against long COVID. If people with infections with Delta breathe out a great number of infectious particles, as was originally thought, the infections that they pass on will have higher initial amounts of virus. That could allow Delta to replicate more rapidly than other variants, even in fully vaccinated people, says Iwasaki. The higher dose could give the virus a better opportunity to establish a reservoir or provoke an overactive immune response, either of which might then lead to long COVID, she suggested. As vaccines programs continues, researchers will gain a better sense of how vaccines and variants affect long COVID rates and severity. It is also possible that vaccination might help to reduce long COVID in those who already have the condition, but they're not sure yet. And the article kind of goes on. I should also no, it goes on into a recover program, but I should also note that this uh, article is one of the newest ones I found talking about vaccinations among COVID, um, but it is still from November 2021, and we have seen a much more severe and highly contagious form of COVID going around. Delta is no longer the big scary variant, right? We had Omicron, and now we have a new I think Delta 2 is what it's being called coming out and going around. So just given the data in this article, we could see that, again, these assumptions that universities are making, these assumptions that uh, people who want to lift mask mandates, people who want to go maskless on planes that actually believe that COVID is dangerous, uh, they seem to think that the vaccines will protect you against all of it. And the data simply isn't there. Uh, there are still breakthrough cases. And while it reduces your risk of immediate symptoms and hospitalization. We still have absolutely no idea how it affects people with long COVID or in catching long COVID. And while I won't go through and like read another article at people, um, I think it's important to kind of talk about like long COVID and while the symptoms are maybe hard to pin down and it's hard to know the causes, uh, we can look at the effects and how it's harming people. Uh, there's an article from January 12th, 2022 in The Guardian by Nick Guthy, um, and it's titled, My Wife Had Long COVID and Killed Herself. We must help others who are suffering. Uh, in this article, he kind of goes through uh, how severe her case was, how she was being denied medical care, how she was kind of being gaslit and told nothing was really wrong with her. Um, and before they even recognized long COVID as kind of like a thing. And because of the pain, because of the struggling, because of how long it lasted, she did end up taking her own life. And after um, Heidi, the wife's obituary went viral, uh, as mentioned in the last article, Survivor Corpse, um, one of the world's largest long COVID advocacy groups connected with him and he was telling his wife's story. Um, but if you would like a personal account and more information on uh, individual suffering as related to long COVID, that article is, is um, very insightful. 
And finally, yeah, this is not a happy topic. I'm, <laughs> I don't think anything I cover is necessarily a very happy topic. But it is, I think, important to mention that numbers are on the rise. And so I'm looking at a map of coronavirus cases in the world, um, according to John Hopkins University. And uh, these figures were updated on April 26, 2022. We could see uh, that we have... <sighs> In the U.S., only 60% of people are fully vaccinated, and we can see that there, um, that there is, wow, only 60%. There is a high rise in um, cases of coronavirus around the world and in deaths. In the U.S., we have had 986,953 deaths. That is a death rate of 300.7%. Uh, percent and the way they're breaking this down. Oh no, I don't want to sort it by death rate. Oops. We also have the highest cases in the entire world with eight. <laughs> Whew. Okay. It's a big number. 80,459,923 cases reported as of April 26, 2022. Um, the way this chart in, uh, this is bbc.com, and the article I'm referencing is part of their world news, COVID map, coronavirus cases, deaths, vac vaccinations by country. And so we can see um, one of the things they do is color code new cases. And since January of 2020, the U.S. has been in the black, and the color scale is yellow for under 10,000 orange for under a hundred thousand, um, like, I guess, what is that color? Like salmon for under one K, um, brick for under 10 K and then above 10 K is in the black. And since January, 2022, America has been in the black. We've had over, um, 10 K, uh, per deaths per a hundred thousand people in the U.S. since this has started, and we've done absolutely nothing. Again, 60% of our population is fully vaccinated. Um, we've done we've done nothing to really stop the spread. We've done nothing to keep people safe. We've done nothing to prevent long COVID because all of the measures we've done have been half or quarter measures, and we're seeing the effects of that, and the effects of that are people dying. So that this is just me covering a bunch of data and science and articles talking about long COVID um, and really thinking about the lifting of the mask mandates and uh, just the premature reopenings of everything in the U.S. Essentially, the United States has decided that capitalism is more important than people's lives, which is also a very short-sighted measure because that means is it capitalism is a system that needs people, it needs workers, it needs, right, constant replenishing of workers in order to reproduce the conditions that make capital and make capitalists able to buy, trade, sell, own, etc. Um, and with people dying, there's going to be less people out there for the system to exploit. So it's really in their best interest to uh, preserve our lives. But for some reason, that hasn't occurred to them. Uh, but yes, that is the end of, of the main segment. I would also like to highlight that uh, our next segment, Maggie Fair 
Institute resources. Uh, we are trying to revive our Instagram right now. You can find us at Maggie Fair Institute on Instagram. Um, we do repost infographs. We try to uh, engage organically with our followers. So if you have an Instagram account, please follow us. We're doing our best on there. Um, I've been kind of like revving up posting and engagement, and we'd really like to have you follow us. And then on to our very last segment, we want to hear from you. This is our contact us. We do have an email, which is just the title of the show, no comma, exit capitalism, stage left at gmail.com. And today's question uh, comes from somebody uh, who is asking about uh, my other kind of like, uh, I think it was last week or the week or last week, last month or the month before where I talked about um, Elon Musk and why I don't like him because somebody asked me that. And somebody said, given my last take on Elon Musk, what do I think of his Twitter purchase? I, I almost kind of think I should rename the segment because I keep getting Elon Musk questions. Uh, it should just be, I hate Elon Musk and that's the end segment. Um, <laughs> and he's my personal moral enemy. Um, but I, I really do think that Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter for, uh, what did I say earlier, like $44 billion um, is a purely selfish act. He thinks he knows better than the people who are running it. He thinks he knows um, how to protect free speech, but that's not what he's doing. He's already blocking people. His his idea of protecting free speech is protecting his own free speech. And he's already made tweets saying that in purchasing Twitter, he wants to make sure both sides represented the right and the left, which is problematic because spreading Nazi propaganda is, is not a great way of preserving free speech. There are exceptions to free speech for a reason and hate speech, uh, which would come from the fascist right is considered something that uh, is an exception to the rule of the freedom of speech. I don't think Elon Musk knows that. Um, and given Elon Musk's uh, personal history with uh, racism in his companies and just, I don't know, making all of his family money from uh, apartheid, I don't, I don't really have a lot of faith in the way he's going to preserve quote unquote freedom of speech on Twitter. Um, and I also don't think that's his goal. But yeah, that is it. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, this has been Amanda Riggle, and this podcast is Exit Capitalism Stage Left, and it's brought to you by the Maggie Fair Institute for Democracy and Human Rights. And we will see you for our 11th episode.